Now, this is going to sound like um, kind of a no-brainer statement. You might say, duh, but the birth of Christ changes everything. No kidding, right? You're like, duh, like you went to seminary for that? Yes, I did. But the birth of Christ radically changes everything. I mean, I'll agree that is an, uh, an understatement to say the least. But I think it's worth noting here, kind of at the beginning of our time together this morning, that what this time of the year represents, it alters everything from history itself to our own personal lives, which is why we carve out these weeks to even do Advent, to slow down, to read Scripture, to consider, to think. We don't do this just to display some type of creativity. We do this to put our attention on this magnificent, glorious story. You, hopefully, will agree with me that it is no small event that Christ comes in the way that he did come. I will agree that maybe on the surface, his plain and simple entrance into the world might, might make him seem irrelevant. You see, a, a common woman conceives, and now we all agree, it is a miraculous way. It's not really plain and simple, but others would see it as scandalous. A common man, though we have learned, is in the lineage of King David. He is only seen as a commoner with minimum resources, but he cares for Mary. He sits by her side. Then there's this common baby who is born in meager surroundings, but yet <laughs> he is the everlasting king. You see, all these details are fit for a commoner, but what we are seeing and how Matthew is telling the story of Jesus is that this event is different. And come to find out it is not common at all. Underneath all the details lies a sovereign God who is holding history in his hands, bringing about salvation from sin's deadly effects. Matthew is teaching that Jesus has come to save his people from the common man to the king, from men to women, from the lowly to the highly exalted Christ has come. This morning, we're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to work our way all the way up to verse 15. But uh, since it's narrative, let's just take it in chunks so that we don't get too far ahead. So we can see the story unfold. So let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's how it starts in chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. A familiar part of the Christmas story. You see, wise men, they observe a star in the sky. This star prompts them to take a costly and lengthy trip to meet and not only meet, but they indicate to worship the king of the Jews. 
I've got questions. <laughs> like Jared said last week, I think we are so familiar with the Christmas story that sometimes we lose the tremendous oddities of the details. How do these wise men, or magi, if you will, how in the world do they know that this star represents that a king of the Jews has been born? They're pagans. How do they know this? I've got questions. Do they have scriptures? Is there an Old Testament nearby? How do they take apparently a known prophecy how do they even know it, first of all? How do they take the prophecy of the star and then conclude, oh yeah, the king has been born? Lastly, and rather intriguing, and maybe the most intriguing part about these first couple of verses, why are they so eager to go express their praise and to worship this king? You see the familiarity of the wise men, and we set up the little nativity scene. This is odd. This is strange. How do they know these things, and what compels them to go? Well, maybe you've done some examination on yourself, and maybe some of this won't be new, but for us this morning, it's worth reflecting that there are some clues here in the text. You see, wise men, or magi, as I say, that's the Greek word underneath it, as a title, right? It's a title of these people. It actually indicates that these men are intelligent scholars who are experts in ancient philosophy and apparently astronomy. They have been observing the sky for quite a long time. So much so that they notice that there is a new star that had appeared that prompts them to look into it. That's, that's the best we can do. And, and history shows and records show that Magi were intelligent men who, who examined this, who often examined the stars and did a lot of observation. They know so much and have observed so much they notice a difference. Well, perhaps with this difference and with their studies, with their knowledge of history, because they'd be well-versed in it, with philosophy, their understanding of science, and all the disciplines that they're very, very good at, well, they put two and two together. And they take all this info, and they conclude that the king of the Jews has been born. Now, you might be wondering, as I am, is, okay, so what? information did they stumble upon to begin to make this type of connection because it's not out of thin air that they get so narrow and then that belief compels them to take a costly and lengthy trip well they make mention of a star they actually mention a prophecy about a star that indicates a king has been born. Well, if you scour the Old Testament, there actually is a place that mentions a star coming. Numbers 24, 17 that you can look at. Now, Numbers in this uh, particular verse is found in a wonderful, wonderful story about Balaam and his donkey. Yes, it is great reading later this afternoon. 
Balaam and his donkey. Numbers 22, chapter 22 to Numbers 24. It gives all the details. But Balak, the king of Moab, here's the story. Balak, he's the king of Moab, okay? He is fearful, scared to death about all the Jews who are camped just outside the city. He's scared to death of them because of what Israel did to the Amorites, or shall I say what God did through them. So he, as king, is threatened by all of these people. So he summons Balaam. Balaam is a pagan prophet. He summons him and says, hey, I want you to go extend a curse over these people. If you go curse them, perhaps they won't destroy us. But wouldn't you know, before Balaam can take any action, God comes to him and says, hey, you better not do that. You should not do that. So Balak presses more, right? Like as a good king, he comes and says, hey, um, no, I really need you to go curse God's people. So he presses him, and Balaam says, okay, fine, I'll go. And the Lord says, okay, fine, humor me, go. But as he goes, something strange happens. Well, if you're familiar with the story, you already know the cat's out of the bag, right? Or the donkey is out of the bag, I suppose. The donkey, along his journey, actually stops him. I'm not kidding. You can read it. The donkey actually stops him. He tosses him and says, nope, I am not going. Now, it's very oversimplification, those words. There's much more said. But God causes the donkey to stop, speaks to Balaam and says, nope, we're not doing this. Well, this, as with any of us in the room, it leads Balaam to say, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to do this, but I am going to do something. So Balaam, actually, from this point forward, he goes back to Balak, and he gives a series of prophecies. And you know what he does? Pronounces blessing, success, pronounces God's hand on Israel. So he goes quite from cursing to now blessing. And in his final oracle, here's what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab, very directed there, and break down all the sons of Seth. This, more than likely, is the story the wise men are aware of, that perhaps they've read accounts of, because they're from the east where this would have taken place. They probably are familiar with this particular story. I mean, who's not going to retell that one? So they, in humility, based upon the information they have, they believe the Lord Most High is bringing the star, that the scepter has Come, that the king is here. They believe it so much, they go and seek out the king of the Jews, who had been told of from time past, with the most unique of stories. Balaam, an outsider, pagan prophet, declaring what these people actually are and what God has said, declaring blessing. Pagan men leave the east to go seek out what God has done. 
It's fascinating. So this is probably what is swimming around that has allowed them to connect the dots. They believe it so much, they decide to go. All right, so let's look at verses uh, 3 to 8. Let's see how the story continues to unfold. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. He's troubled, everybody's troubled. Verse 4, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will, be shepherd my, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, in verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. King Herod is troubled, to say the least. <laughs> he hears the word king, and he instantly begins devising a plan to get rid of this newly born authority, to wipe out any threat to his power. So he goes right to the best source to understand whether these wise men, these intelligent scholars, these uh, intellectual people, what are they saying? So he summons together the top-notch scholars of scriptures. He summons the people who could piece together the puzzle for him and help him have greater understanding. These are top-notch people in what the Bible says, what the Bible means. But apparently, they're not top-notch in heeding what it says. They hear the news of these odd, wise men, these Magi coming from the east, they hear the news of a star and they know exactly what they are talking about. I mean, these chief priest scribes, the top notch scholars of scripture, they're so familiar with scriptures that they pulled another prophecy out to clarify what is happening. And they're so well-versed that they actually can specifically answer the question, the very detailed question, where is this king? <laughs> Amen. Good. They are so familiar that they can answer the very detailed question. It's almost as if Herod comes to them and they go, oh, that's easy. Oh, he's in Bethlehem. See this scripture from Micah 5, 2? Well, it references, our people actually cling to this verse. It references that the Messiah we looked at a few weeks ago, right? The Christ, the king of David's throne, which has been an emphasis of Matthew. The scepter that they're talking about, look, it's right here. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, King Herod, that's easy. Give us a harder question. We have been waiting for this. Our people have been clinging to this moment. Oh, that's easy. He's in Bethlehem. 
after that realization, you think that they would want to go give their praise and worship to the Messiah, the everlasting king, whose kingdom will never end. But they don't. Isn't this overwhelming? For them to quickly say, this text, Micah 5, 2, they have clung to for, for a long, long time, anticipating that the Messiah would come and be born in Bethlehem. Wise men come from way away. Hey, <laughs> he's here. Have you not noticed? And they go, oh, yeah, well, he's in Bethlehem. You would think that at that news, that the long-awaited Messiah, the top-notch scholars who have studied this and eagerly awaiting that they would go, but they don't. You see, they're able to unlock where the star is pointing, but they're unaware in their indifference of what all this means. They're unaware of how this event changes everything. They're just simply indifferent to the information that they have studied for years. You see, for them, it's just information in a book. But you and I know, and the Magi seem to understand, that it's way more than just information in a book. But the promised king who is going to reign forever has been born where is he? We want to go there. Well, these top-notch scholars who are very aware of Scripture simply don't care. It's just information to them. As Herod gains the information, he tells them, keep going, it's Bethlehem, and when you get there, let me know. So I can come worship him as well. Well, let's see how the story goes. Let's look at verse 9. Verse 9, and we'll go down to verse 11. After listening to the king, wise men listened to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down. They worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Though the top-notch Bible scholars, though they don't care, the wise men continue. And as they continue, the text says that as the star, it, it kind of, it reappears. As, at its appearance again, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. How many words can you cram into one sentence to express the exuberance of these wise men? There's a reason why all of those words exist. It's trying to capture just how joyous this moment is. For these men rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You see, their journey has produced greater insight. 
It has created this great excitement to meet the new king. See how the puzzle pieces have come together and it's affecting them. The star for them represents a clear direction to the king. Without it, there's no direction. With it, there is hope and there is great joy. The star causes them to rejoice because it shows them where the king is. Now, you may be wondering, and if you're not, you're going to wonder now. There's been a lot of speculation as to what actually the event is that brings the star. There's been a lot of research done to find out, is there records of some historical moment of something like this appearing and happening? Well, actually, believe it or not, there's a couple of options. Two planets aligning that creates a bright spot in the sky. Or maybe a comet or a supernova explosion. And each of those, they actually, believe it or not, have historical validity. They actually have historical records that perhaps around that time these things could have occurred. But, you know, it's a bit uncertain. But that's irrelevant. Because what is certain is that God caused the phenomenon to occur to prompt the wise men to seek Jesus. They did not see things. They were not on drugs or drunk and just seeing things. Intelligent scholars who had given their life to observation, particularly the sky, they knew something was different. They did not see things. God revealed, God directed them to exactly where Jesus lay. When they arrive, they offer gifts fit for a king. You see, they're not just giving lip service, but they're showing this indeed is the king. These are expensive gifts fit only for a king. Their belief apparently has grown. Their actions reveal a desire to seek and know this king. This is no ordinary moment. The text doesn't tell us how long that the wise men stayed. But I suppose, maybe I suspect that Joseph and Mary, they might have filled them in on the many details about the king that they came to worship. Maybe they sat down and over coffee, if you had coffee then, I don't know. Perhaps they, they, they sat down and they said, oh, there's so much more wise men. Let's see how the story of Christ's birth or this, this moment in his birth, let's see how it ends. Let's read uh, verses 12 to 15 in chapter 2, okay? So now the wise men have uh, declared their worship. They have acknowledged. They have, this is the king, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they depart to their own country by another way. Verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child. Very different search, huh? Comma, to destroy him. Not to worship him as he indicated, but to destroy him. Verse 14. And he, Joseph, rose, took the child, his mother, by night and departed to Egypt. 
Verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What a different seeking we get here. <laughs> Though verse 12, you may be, why did you read 12 and then th Like verse 12 is the last word on that specific story, right? Where the wise men come and now they leave. 13 through 15, we can kind of see the connection, right? It carries the same theme of God's protection. You see, the wise men in humility, they sought out Jesus. As they sought out Jesus, they gained a greater understanding of him so that when the Lord directed them, you know what they did? They listened. <laughs> they obeyed. On this journey, they have come to learn a lot because you realize what they are doing? They are refusing to heed the orders of a powerful king. Herod is no small king, and we're going to learn it's quite evil. They're choosing to ignore a powerful king to obey the ultimate king. They leave out a different way because they trust God. They trust God more than Herod's supposed desire to worship. You see, their action of obedience protects the long-awaited, everlasting king. Oh, could they have ever imagined when they set out on this journey what they would discover and learn. But see, God doesn't stop there. But he continues to protect by giving Joseph very specific instructions. Go to Egypt. Get out of here. Because Herod's going to come looking too. But he's got a different agenda when he comes. And as we have come to expect, you know, what does Joseph do? Well, in faith, he obeys. He simply does what God says, and he goes to Egypt. Now, on the surface, when we read this, we understand it's very clear. What is God doing? God, uh, this move is to uh, keep them safe, right? I mean, it's very obvious. It's clear. This is for their safety. It's going to protect them from the evil lunacy of King Herod. We're going to see more of that next week. But it also does something else. Remember that the details surrounding the birth of Christ are screaming, this is no ordinary child. And even just go, fleeing to safety is doing more, declaring more of who this child is. You see, at the end of these few verses, right, just seem like details. God came to Joseph, sovereignly moving, protecting the baby. Okay, they go to Egypt. They're going to be kept safe. At the end of this, we get just a few words. Matthew says, wait a minute, let me make it clear what else is happening. He connects the dot to this move. Yes, Jesus is going to be safe. Yes, it's going to keep them alive. But also, this seemingly necessity of a move is actually declaring something. This move is declaring that this baby is indeed one that has been prophesied about. Here at this point, this is the third connection that Matthew has made to Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah King. Star has appeared. He is to be born in Bethlehem. And here he would be called out of Egypt. Now, it doesn't take us long to hear Egypt 
out of Egypt and, and feel a certain, oh, yeah, I remember an event that God moved fairly significantly in bringing his people out of Egypt. You see, out of Egypt, just the phrase alone, it is full of historical moments, right? It's, it's full of all the feels, right, if you will, of what? God delivering his people. God delivering his sons and daughters. You see, Matthew takes this text from Hosea, and he says this is that, that out of Egypt, that event was only the beginning of God's deliverance. You see, out of Egypt, God's son will come and deliver his people from their greatest enemy, sin. What's most fascinating about this Old Testament context is it was uh, the, the people of Israel as a group were called the sons, daughters of God. And here, Matthew applies it to Christ. That he, the individual, the ultimate representation of Israel, the ultimate one would come out of Egypt and save his people. And this is fascinating and we could explore for hours, but here's what you need to hear this morning. The pieces are being put into place. History is being set up and arranged according to God's will and come to find out our good. That is what is occurring here. And I'll have to agree that there's so much to enjoy about this narrative of, of Jesus Christ's birth. Matthew's account pulls us in in so many ways. It has so many surprises, but yet those surprises are exactly how it was supposed to go. See Old Testament. <laughs> and with this, Jesus becomes this tremendous fulfillment of all that was said. Simply with the phrase, out of Egypt, deliverance begins to be thought. Simply with these few words, they're saying, Oh, this child God's going to use to deliver us so much to enjoy and come to find out exactly how it was supposed to be. Now, this morning, I want us to reflect just on three words, all right? And this is some of my old schoolness coming you know, back to me that I want to keep all the same letter, but here it is, ickiness, indifference, our indignation. You're like, well, those are odd. You see, when we think about Jesus, there is and will always be these responses to Jesus. You see, it happens at his birth, and I think it happens in our own lives, right? Depending on the day, you can move from strong desire for Christ, above all efforts, to indifference, to downright disdain. You see, following Jesus, trusting him, it's not always easy peasy. But what does it require? Humility. Do you know in all of these responses that we've seen today, they hinge on one important thing. I think the hard thing for uh, them to stomach or for them to deal with is the authority of Jesus. 
Matthew has went to great lengths to say that this tiny baby has all authority, that he is actually the king. This is what's being talked about. These are the connections being made. God, in his ultimate and incredible work, has brought about the one who has all authority. And see how they respond? The wise men are desiring to worship. The chief priests are simply just indifferent. And Herod is outright fuming with anger. We'll see more of that next week. What am I getting at? Well, consider the wise men. You know what their wisdom is? Humbly seeking Jesus. <laughs> That's their wisdom. You see, at every turn, there's a sovereign God giving them exactly what they need to find Jesus. They seem, here it is, to have an itch to know more. I don't mean itchiness by the annoyance. I mean the strong to desire to know more. They could have stopped at any turn. They could have gave up. They could have quit. They could have been scared. But yet something compels them to move forward. And at every turn, they have everything they need to find Jesus. God made sure of it. You see, back east, they seek out records. They look at their history. Presumably, they read accounts of Balaam, and they make connections. And then they head out on their long journey. They stop in Jerusalem, perhaps believing that there would be answers there. I mean, after all, it's full of Jews, <laughs> who should be excited about their information that the king has been born, but yet they're met with indifference, false claims of worship. And that false claim of worship really reveals indignation, as we'll see. You see, the wise men seek Jesus, and they walk away in faith amazed and worshipful. Can I say something today? If you're with us today, you need to know that being here, that's God's design. I don't think you're here just by mistake. Much like the wise men and God showing up at every turn, giving them absolutely everything they needed to find King Jesus, you are here this morning. Whether this is your first time, your 12th time, your hundredth time, you're here this morning. You're, you're with us. And according to how God works, this seems to be his design, that you are with us this morning. And everything is in front of you to know Jesus. By your presence here, by God's word that we open up this morning and we examine thoroughly, you have all you need to know Jesus. Don't miss Jesus this morning. You humbly must see God's work in Jesus. Trust him, seek him, worship him. This morning, I'm grateful if you're in this journey of seeking, but might I challenge you, you need to do something with Jesus. 
I trust and in faith and repentance that you'll humbly see that God is indeed at work. And he's been at work. Come to find out in all of history (laughs) that history is completely in his hands. How about we consider the indifference of chief priests and the scribes? It amazes me to have all the answers. All the answers declared. Oh yeah, the Messiah. Micah 5.2 has told us he, the one we're waiting for, is going to be in Bethlehem. They have all the answers but no devotion. No care that just a few miles away from them is the promised child who is wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Just a few miles away sits the one who can save them. Sits the one that all their information has been pointing to. And yet they're indifferent. They're not moved. It's one thing to know a lot of stuff. It's another thing to have your hearts moved. It's evident that their hearts are still hard, though they have all the knowledge. Every piece of information they could possibly have, but yet they are still hard and indifferent. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us not be heads full of knowledge and hearts that aren't devoted. It's possible to study at great length, to memorize scripture, and miss what it all points to. This morning, you could come seeking all the information to think that you have done well today. But let us be warned by the chief priests who do not go and worship the king. Let us not grow indifferent to the beauties of Christ. Lastly, Consider the indignant King Herod with claims of worship. Now, his character is going to get revealed next week, but there's pretty strong hints here that he's not a very uh, strong believer, and he's not very happy about baby Jesus. We see in the interaction God has with Joseph, he indicates he is trying to destroy. We're going to see with great clarity of the great lengths that he'll go to. You see, the moment the wise men come into town looking for king of the Jews, Herod goes on high alert. He begins making plans to eradicate this new king. Did you notice that when it says he's troubled, that all Jerusalem is troubled? He's a lunatic. He is evil, and he's troubled that a greater authority has come. You see, the greater authority declared by God's word that is so plain from pagan Magi to the chief priests have declared it in front of him. That greater authority that God has said will come, it scares Herod, and more importantly to him, it threatens his own authority. He gets the info he needs. He then attempts to manipulate the wise men to to give him Jesus' position. But we know it's not to worship him. It's to get rid of him. And we'll see the great lengths he'll go to. But I don't know about you, how 
unthinkable. How arrogant do you have to be to believe that you can alter God's will? That you can have enough power to take history out of God's hands and wield it to your own good pleasure. It is the height of arrogance to believe one is above God. It is of the highest move in arrogance and pride to believe that you are above God. How many of us sit here this morning with claims of worship, yet our heart is far from humbly putting Christ in authority over our lives? How many of us know the claims of Scripture and refuse to hear them? I don't think we have an option here. He's the greater authority. Now, if you're anything like me, sure, you love to pick and choose, wouldn't you? You love to move and will to Scripture in a way that feels a little bit better and easier for you, but you do not have that luxury. Here, and we'll see more clearly next week, we'll see the display of the highest arrogance in the highest form, believing that you are above God and that you will move history for your own good pleasure. If you're visiting with us, I'm so thankful that you're here. If you've been with us for a long time, I'm so thankful that you are here. I am praying that there will be an ickiness to the, uh, those of us who call this place home, always desiring to know and follow Jesus. But I'm afraid at times we can move to indifference as we grapple with the hard scriptures that grapple with our hearts that we're unwilling to yield to and submit to. This morning, I'm praying that the Lord would break through the hard arrogance of pride in our hearts to remind us that he moves history of his own good pleasure, but it is for also our good. This morning, let us be overwhelmed with what all this represents. But let us be challenged. How are we responding to Jesus? Does he have the highest authority? Is he the object of your worship this morning? If not, I'd challenge you to grab someone after and talk further. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful for the truths of your scripture. There is so much being unpacked here in Matthew's gospel. He's, he's pulling in how sovereign and how holy and how your providence has worked to bring about Christ in the most amazing way. Father, we could sit back and marvel at the details, and we should, because it is, it is phenomenal to think that all has converged from the Old Testament to the moment of Christ's birth. But Father, it's, it's, we don't want to just marvel. We want it to work within us a greater devotion to Christ. To work within us greater joy this morning. That we would uh, exceedingly rejoice with great joy at the thought of Christ. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us all that we need to know Christ. 
if some among us are seeking, might they be challenged this morning? If some among us are unwilling to heed all of God's word, might you soften their hearts this morning? As we look at the birth of Christ, might we be mindful that you indeed are king. And our best response is to humbly and faith and repentance turn to you. So, Father, it is in your holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.